The Jodcast, running rings around the other podcasts, with Adam Avison, George Bendo, Andy LeClerc, and Mark Herbert. The Jodcast, September 2014, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. In the studio with me today is Indy and Mark. Hello. Hi. In the show this time, Mark talks to Dr. Jane Greaves about the early stages of plant formation, and Dr. Adam Avison answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Mark interviews Professor Ben Steppers about a transformer pulsar in this month's Jod Bite. For this month's Jod Bite, I'm speaking to Professor Ben Stappers here at Georgia Bank Center for Astrophysics, who's had a press release recently about a very unusual type of pulsar. So, Ben, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on with that one? Yeah, the press release was about a pulsar in a binary system. The pulsar is called PSR J1023 plus 0038, which basically just gives you its address in the sky. It's a millisecond pulsar, so it rotates extremely rapidly. The period is, in fact, around about 1.7 milliseconds. And it's in a binary system where the two stars orbit each other once every 4.8 hours. And it has a very low-mass companion star. And the companion star in the radio eclipses the radio emission. So every orbit, for around about 10% of the orbit, the radio emission is partially eclipsed by what we believe is a wind from the companion star. So that's the basic system as it stands. So it's really extreme. I mean, you're talking about 1.7 milliseconds, so it's going round hundreds of times a second. And not only that, but also orbiting the star in only a few hours. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's an exceptional system in that sense. There are a handful of these type of systems known now. What makes this system stand out even more is that not only is it in this binary system, but we believe that less than 20 years ago, it was actually still something called an X-ray binary. So, in fact, it was first detected and identified as a completely different type of source. It was first thought to be a cataclysmic variable, and then maybe it was thought to be a low-mass X-ray binary, because it was first identified through its X-ray emission and the fact that it had a companion star. And, and so, actually, quite a lot was known about the optical light from the companion star before it was serendipitously discovered as a radio pulsar. So, in the, the mid-2000s, it was discovered as a radio pulsar, and then they got the position for it, and then they looked in the literature like every good astronomer should, and discovered, hey, look, somebody thought there was this interesting source here before, but it had quite different characteristics. So it looks like when they found it, it had transitioned from being an X-ray source to a radio pulsar. And this is very interesting because we think that the way that millisecond pulsars form is that you have a neutron star, which may or may not have been a pulsar in the past, in a binary system with another low-mass star, or lower-mass star, I should say. Once that lower-mass star evolves, material from that star is more gravitationally attracted to the neutron star, it can form an accretion disk around the neutron star, and then ultimately matter can accrete onto the neutron star. And when that matter accretes onto the neutron star, it transfers angular momentum, and that causes the neutron star to be spun up Okay, so that's how we get these so-called millisecond pulsars, and sometimes they're referred to as being reborn or something like that. And so during this X-ray phase, this low-mass X-ray binary phase, so named because it predominantly emits in the X-rays, and the X-rays either are coming from the accretion disk itself, or 
as was discovered in around about 1998, I think it was, material from the accretion disk can actually fall onto the poles of the neutron star, and you can actually get millisecond X-ray pulsations. So the discovery of this particular source, which is, has a nickname SACS-J1808, when that was discovered, it was sort of seen to be strong confirmation that this idea that you go from a neutron star in a binary with a companion star through a low-mass X-ray binary phase, and then at the end you come out the other side and you have a millisecond pulsar, either with a companion star, which can be a range of different things, or if, depending on the system, you can actually completely destroy the companion star, and so you end up with an isolated millisecond pulsar. So this was the situation up until around about June of last year. So there was just one system that had ever been observed to actually be making that transition from the X-rays to radio waves. Yeah, at that time. Subsequent to that, there is another one, maybe two systems now. There's one in the globular cluster. It's called M28I, and that had gone the other way, as it were. And then subsequent to new work on this system, we think there's another system that looks like it's probably transitioning, but we need to catch it and go back again to be able to be sure that it's definitely transitioned. So what's particularly interesting about the system that you've discovered and that's being featured in the press release and in a paper? Yeah, so one of my collaborators actually discovered the source originally. So what we discovered about the source was using the Lovell telescope at Chodrell Bank, we regularly time hundreds of pulsars, and this is one of the ones we look at often. And we suddenly realized that we weren't seeing the pulsar anymore. And while it's in an eclipsing system, so occasionally you expect not to see the pulsar. Our observations were long enough and there were enough of them that we were suddenly alerted to thinking, oh my goodness, what's happened? Our colleagues in the Netherlands also look at it with the Westerbog Synthesis Telescope, and they too noticed when we alerted them that, yes, they hadn't seen it for a little while. And we were able to narrow it down to within a couple of week period when it actually apparently turned off as a radio source. Now, I say turned off, we actually don't know if it's stopped emitting in the radio, but we certainly can't detect the radio emission anymore. And Archibald, working at Astron in the Netherlands, noticed that at the same time, there was a dramatic increase in the gamma ray flux from this source. And then further work showed us that Alessandro Petruno, working also in the Netherlands, he looked in the x-rays with SWIFT, and noticed also that the X-ray behavior had changed. Subsequently, with optical follow-up of the companion star, we were able to show that the system once again had an accretion disk. So we'd lost the radio emission, and we had evidence for an accretion disk in the system. And so it apparently completed at least one cycle of this going from low-mass X-ray binary, radio pulsar, radio millisecond pulsar, and apparently back to a low-mass X-ray binary phase. Although it's currently not accreting. The neutron star is not accreting. Otherwise, we'd expect the X-ray emission to be much brighter than it currently is. So this is sort of interesting. It means it's unclear whether we're at the end of this whole LMXB phase. And so it's sort of in an unstable situation where subtle changes in the mass loss rate of the companion star, either through the temperature or tidal interactions, cause it to lose more mass, which means that that suppresses the wind from the pulsar so that it overcomes the pressure from the wind it can form an accretion disk again uh, and then we end up with the situation that we have now so that's why it's particularly interesting 
do we think it goes for a long period of accretion and then at the end it can seesaw back and forth and then at some point emerges a radio pulsar? How long does that kind of period of accretion actually last for? Yeah, that's a very good question. To be fair, I don't think we know the answer. I mean, the low-mass X-ray binary phase, we have a reasonable idea about how long that lasts overall based on we know typically how much you have to spin up the star. You can work out for reasonable efficiency of spin up. You can work out how much mass that is and the mass accretion rates and things like that. So you get a lifetime for that. And it's not actually very long compared to the entire lifetime of millisecond pulsars in general. So millisecond pulsars tend to be a billion years old or more. And whereas the LMXB phase is probably tens of millions of years. So it could be as you say, that we're right at the end of that phase, and so that's we end up this oscillation stage. It could be very interesting if this is the case. Well, it is very interesting if this is the case, because this would basically be the birth of a millisecond pulsar that we're seeing here. And so we'd know a lot about the initial conditions in millisecond pulsars. As I mentioned, most of the ones we've discovered are much older, and so they've already spun down their periods have increased from the maximum period they had when they were born. Whereas this one, we're maybe seeing at its maximum period. It's also yet to be seen whether this will actually start accreting again and whether we'll see if it comes back as a radio pulsar or we are able to detect pulsations in the x-rays, whether or not the spin period has been affected by this phase that is currently in now. Right, so we'll be able to perhaps measure it spinning faster if we're lucky. It may, it may, who knows, but if accretion takes place, it may end up coming out the other side spinning faster than it currently is. And that brings me on to another interesting question when you're talking about the fact that there's a number of millisecond pulsars out there, so obviously systems can evolve into that. How might we expect this system to end up? And also related to that, how on earth did it get into the state it's in now in the first place? Because you've got a pulsar which at some point has been creating a supernova explosion and yet it somehow ended up really, really close to this companion star. So do we have any idea how a system like this gets to where it is and, and where it's going to? In fact, we do, I think. I mean, I think the models are quite robust in terms of understanding how we get to, at least to the LMXB phase, and probably after that. And basically, it's relatively sensitive to the initial conditions of the binary system. But the process of accretion itself can generate the compactness that we see now. When the supernova happened that made the neutron star, they wouldn't have been as close together at that time. No, no, that's right. That's right. I mean, in general, they would have been further apart. And the companion star would have evolved and expanded rapidly, and so would have been much larger than it currently is. And that would have allowed it to the accretion phase to begin, and that accretion phase would have affected the evolution. That part of it's reasonably well understood. The bits that aren't well understood are, for example, as listeners may know, normal radio pulsars have very strong magnetic fields, 10 to the 12 gauss or something like that, and millisecond pulsars have something like 10 to the 8 gauss. So if this neutron star had been a normal pulsar, then how do we go between these two different fields? And is that somehow related to this whole phase that we're looking at now, this low-mass X-ray binary phase? What does that do to the magnetic field strength? So that's an interesting area. And again, this whole business about what are the birth periods of millisecond pulsars is very interesting because that can have an influence on the equation of state. So that the interior of the neutron star, how stiff that can be, depends very strongly on what the most rapid rotation rate is for any given neutron star. And so knowing what their birth periods is is very interesting. To see if they really ever get spun up, I guess, to their absolute limit. 
Yes, that's right. Physically. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. Whether they, I'm not sure they would ever get to break up, but who knows? But certainly this 1.7 millisecond pulsar, I'm not sure exactly where it ranks in the list, but it's within, within a few of the fastest spinning. So it's one of the most rapid spinning ones we know about already. So it's interesting if this is really where it was born, as it were, then maybe there aren't many things that spin more rapidly than this that exist. And just as a last question, what actually happens to the material when it's falling from the star onto the pulsar? Presumably it's going very quickly by the time it hits the pulsar. Does it have to pass through a magnetic field of the pulsar as well? Yeah, again, like I say, first you have to have the secretion disk, otherwise it'll just spit straight back out of the system again because the angular momentum problem, and so it forms an accretion disk. And then, indeed, how you accrete on a strongly magnetized object is an area of research. It's something that people work on. And then, so it's quite possible that you need to fill the accretion disk enough that it starts to penetrate what we call the magnetosphere in order to be able to accrete directly onto the neutron star. It may also be the case, and we see this in other neutron stars, that you can accrete onto the poles via something called a propeller mechanism. And so when it accretes onto the poles, that gives you the possibility to actually see these millisecond pulsations that I was talking about before in the X-rays. So that sort of interaction is actually what we're able to study right now. If the system stays like stable like it is for now, what's happening? Is it just filling up the disk slowly but surely? And will it fill the disk enough? that overcomes the boundaries associated with the magnetic field such that it can actually accrete, or what exactly is going to happen in the next phase. That's why that's particularly interesting. And, you know, we hope <laughs> that this happens on a reasonable timescale. As you can imagine, for a phase in the life of the system, compared to the billions of years it's short, it's still millions of years. And so for us <laughs> as astronomers to be able to see this process happening on a human timescale is actually very interesting and gives us a unique chance to try and, in one object, see... It goes through all these different phases that we see other objects in. So we'll be keeping an eye, presumably, to see if the radio emission switches back on. Uh, yes, yes, very much so. So, you know, we're continuing to monitor the source. We, it might seem crazy, but we know we're observing to see nothing. But the main reason we're doing that is because we want to catch the moment when it turns back on as precisely as we possibly can. And then, again, trigger looking in the X-rays and optical gamma rays, all those sorts of things to be able to say what has happened if and when we transition back to being a radio pulsar. Fantastic. Well, good luck with finding that radio pulsar re-emerging. Thank you very much. Thank you for that, Mark. Next, Mark interviews Dr. Jane Greaves about observing the early stages of planet formation using E. Merlin. I'm interviewing Dr. Jane Greaves, who's visiting Jodra Bank Centre for Astrophysics, but works at the University of St. Andrews. So welcome to, I think, possibly your third ever Jodcast interview. Oh, exciting. Thank you. So the previous one, it's a few years ago now, but it was a national astronomy meeting. And you were talking about a survey called Pebbles, which was actually very appropriately named because it seemed to be essentially <laughs> kind of looking for pebbles yes, in that's right. space. So could you tell us maybe a little recap of it and then how it's been going over the last few months and years? Well, the idea of PEBBLES, which stands for Planet Earth Building Blocks, the legacy E-Merlin survey, so it does indeed spell PEBBLES, <laughs> is to look for pebbles in space, or more specifically, small bits of rock orbiting young stars. And these are the raw ingredients out of which planets form. And they're very hard things to detect. You can imagine even finding a planet around another star is really difficult. So how are you going to find a few little rocks? But they actually give off quite a lot of radiation, and more like heat radiation at long wavelengths than what we think of normally as light we can see. 
sea. So they get off millimetre waves and radio waves particularly, and that's a very distinct thing that other kinds of emission don't really produce that kind of spectral signature. So we planned this survey, which is the longest wavelength this has ever been tried, using eMerlin, run by Jodrell Bank, to look for these raw ingredients of planet formation. So when you're looking for the pebbles, do you need to have a whole sort of field of pebbles, a whole debris field? I mean, presumably you couldn't just pick up one. Is it just picking up the kind of the whole population of them? And how do That's you know right. that they're that yeah. sort of size? Well, we're looking for tiny bits of rock are sticking together into bigger bodies, basically, because that's how we think planets form. So the natural place to look is the material orbiting around very young stars. And eventually that should all turn into planets, which orbit much like the planets in the solar system. But these early stages, this raw material, this kind of grit, if you like, is just spread out like a big plate of particles moving around. And that's why they're very strong emitters, because there's actually quite a lot of particles. They emit well wavelengths about their own size. So if you go out to the radio and you observe at a wavelength of about five centimetres, like Pebbles is going to do. Basically, you can see fist-sized rocks by this method. Wow. And are you able to see what they're made of? Because it's quite exciting. You're really seeing the outer and inner parts of a planet before it's even stuck together. So can you get an idea of what materials are in there? Absolutely, yes. That's what we're trying to do. Because this is very difficult to do, we're not going to get too much of an idea from these exact observations of what the planets are made of. There are other ways of looking, for example, the spectral signature of water lines in some of these, what they're called, circumstances discs, these plates of stuff orbiting around young stars. So facilities like the ALMA millimetre telescopes down in Chile can do that kind of science and it can also be done with space telescopes. So the radio is really more telling you just how much rocks there is and that's a very important thing because you know if you want to make an Earth-like planet you need the mass of the Earth which is six times 10 to the 24 kilograms, some very big number like that, to be glued together. So if you find a lot of stars don't have that mass of rocks, then the chances of ever making an Earth seem, seem nil, really. So a gas giant, I suppose this is kind of an obvious question, really, but that wouldn't involve pebbles as in sort of granular-sized or sort of grit-sized bits of rock, then presumably that's just sort of a big cloud, is it? It starts very much in the same process, so either a lot of these grit-sized bits can come together till you have something with enough gravity, kind of an enormous super comet of rock and ice fluff will collapse under its own gravity and make a planet core. And then in the case of Jupiter, that happened early enough, was massive enough, that the gravity of that body could have tracked a lot of the gas that was still orbiting the star at that point. The other way of looking at this is if there's a really massive disk, a part of it can just spontaneously be a bit denser than the surroundings and sort of collapse in on itself. So that's the way we think that some planets very distant from their stars might be made. So I don't know if this is a question that's able to be answered at the moment, but if you were looking at the Earth as an alien or something and you found all these materials that were on it, like an abundance of oxygen and carbon and nitrogen and things like that, do you think that would be a very unusual sort of mix or is it the sort of thing that you might expect to find elsewhere out there commonly around other stars and I suppose water as well? I think the mix is probably pretty similar everywhere, at least sort of in our part of the galaxy, because these are cosmic elements, they're made in stars. So stars don't one day decide to put out gold instead of carbon or something. So the ingredients are there, it's the details of the process that are so fascinating, because we know of one habitable Earth at the right distance from its sun for liquid water and atmosphere that survives and things, and that's us, obviously. (laughs) One of the things we hope to do with pebbles in a very basic way is look at some of these young stars. Because of the 
fine detail that the Merlin array can see, we can actually look around these stars and separate the sort of distances where Earth and Mars would form from those where Jupiter and Saturn would form. So it's really the first clue at very early times when these stars are incredibly young. If just any of the right stuff is there, well, we might want to make terrestrial planets like the Earth and Mars. That almost answered my next question, actually, which is why is eMerlin so good for doing this? So you're talking about an array that lets you peer very closely into these systems. Yes, is that that's it? right. Yeah, well, eMerlin, I think a lot of people don't realise it's a, an array of telescopes spread over quite a lot of England and Wales. So the furthest apart, I think, are about 200 kilometres. And that's what enables us to see these very fine details. And that facility doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. I mean, people may be more familiar with American or Australian arrays of telescopes, but they're actually not as big. So this is the one in the world that we've been given a a chance to use and we're just starting to get our data so it's really exciting. Fantastic and when these planets eventually condense, I probably shouldn't call them planets, when they become planets from their collection of grains, what sort of time scale does that happen on? Presumably we can't hope to watch it happening kind of in our lifetimes. (laughs) No I think that's a bit unlikely unless you're planning to live rather a long time (laughs) but well the second theory that I mentioned, the one about spontaneous collapse means that the stuff to make the planet, it certainly wouldn't be completed, but it would have kind of come together in one orbit of that cloud of gas and particles moving around the star. So we're probably still talking about hundreds of years. We wouldn't really see it in our lifetimes actually fall in to make a planet. But by looking at lots of these objects at different times, we're hoping to find different behaviours. And if we're very lucky to catch some planets, protoplanets, we'd probably call them, we can get a kind of clue by putting them together as a set as how the whole thing happens. So it's very exciting. And when they get bigger, do they start to get hotter? Do they then move away from the sort of regime that Emo then looks at? to shorter wavelengths? They will, yes. So some of the future infrared space facilities are really exciting for this because the collapse of the body kind of traps the energy and then it can't get out very easily, so it kind of heats up inside. Not as much as a star, but it does make a sort of glowing hot spot. So then you want to move to shorter wavelengths, which match hotter objects better. So first the ALMA, the millimetre array I mentioned, and then more the far infrared stuff that we're hoping to do with space interferometers in the future. Ah, okay. So you'd actually have elements of an array that were up in space. Yes, there are plans for this. I mean, obviously the technology is very difficult, but in maybe a decade or two, we'd be able to launch some things like, you know, slightly smaller versions of the Hubble Space Telescope, but linked together, just stationed in space, keeping the same distance from each other that works basically the way the email in array does on the ground, with a lot of impressive technology even more behind it. That would be fantastic. Well, it's interesting. I find one of the most interesting things about it is that you might imagine, without going into detail, that the way that planets form is understood, but it's actually, even though we stand on a planet right now, we don't know exactly how different sorts of planets form, do we? And, And I think it is interesting as well that you're also working on a body... I won't call it a planet because technically (laughs) it's not in our own solar system, Mm. which is Pluto, almost in our backyard, really. (laughs) So what have you been finding out about Pluto? I've always been fascinated by Pluto. I think even as a child by the fact it was found by a kid they hired from a farm to go through (laughs) a lot of data because he was so enthusiastic. And astronomers really like that. Anybody can discover something important. But Pluto as a dwarf planet is kind of part of what happens in between and how successful you are in planet formation. Do you just end up with a lump of rock or something aside? of a dwarf planet about a thousand kilometres or so in radius or do you end up with a fully blown planet so if we can understand why these dwarf planets are there that's also a sort of side 
clue. So what we've been doing is we looked at some data at millimetre wavelengths, which had actually been lying dusty in the archive of the James Clark Maxwell Telescope. And I vaguely remembered these data had been taken way back in 1997. Wow. <laughs> and nobody had ever really looked at them. And because I was really keen on Pluto, I was thinking, this would make a great project for a student. So my student two or three years back, Ailsa Whitelaw, who's a now graduated and a bachelor's student from the University of St Andrews, did these as her project. And I didn't know what it would be like. It was really open-ended. But what she actually put together was the first ever millimetre light curve of Pluto. So a light curve is what we see when we can't make an image, a picture of something, but it's rotating. So you can tell if it's got dark and light sides, for example. So you can make a very crude map of where these dark and light patches are on the surface. So the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, has been doing this for Pluto, but it had never been done at these very long invisible wavelengths, invisible to the eye. And what in fact I also found is that it doesn't look like the optical one. So you mean the dark and light patches don't line up with where the No, is. and this was a real surprise. It certainly wasn't new science I was expecting to come out of someone's student project, which should be for their degree a more sort of low-risk enterprise. But no, she found this great result we've just submitted for publication. And the thinking is that these long wavelengths can actually come out in what you might call the soil of Pluto a bit further down. It's not really a soil because it's not like farmed, but, you know, it's, it's crumbly rock and ice and so on. So the visible light we see is really just reflected from, say, ice patches on the surface. But this long wavelength light is coming from deeper down, so it can potentially tell you that the surface is different underneath. So if you ever wanted to go and mine for methane and its frozen form on Pluto, for example, you'd know that you might not want to go where there's a tiny thin layer on the surface, but actually there isn't any underneath. Oh, I see. Okay, so you're actually probing what materials are just there under the surface of Pluto. That's right, yes. And because there's a mission on the way there now, and Pluto is, seems to be getting cool again, <laughs> after being demoted, it now seems to be very fashionable again. When New Horizons, the mission, goes there, will this information that you've got help to inform them a little bit when they make their observations? I hope it will, yes. In fact, there's a student-built instrument on the New Horizons mission, so it's a nice link to having a student work out some of the ground-based data. It does a very quick flyby of the dwarf planet in July the 14th, 2015, so it's just under a year from now. It's an exciting year of run-up. But the flyby itself, because the New Horizons spacecraft had to be launched to get there so rapidly, it can't stop. Mm. So the flyby, when it's really taking detailed pictures of the surface, is like half an hour or something. So that actually means that when it's very close, it can only see one side. It kind of flies over one hemisphere. And the most interesting part we saw below the surface is on the other hemisphere, which is kind of slightly annoying. But it does mean that as New Horizons continues as it flies away, the hidden side comes into view a little bit. So we may get some more clues there, particularly as, in fact, there's a radio instrument on New Horizons. It's quite a simple thing. It's not as sophisticated as the visible light cameras, but we're really hoping to get an even deeper picture of what's going on in this mysterious hemisphere. Yeah, I am looking forward to that when that probe flies past. And what materials did you find yourself looking at with the data that you had? There's a lot of frozen ices that are not common things we have on the Earth. So some of it is normal, like water ice, but it's incredibly cold there. It's only about 40 degrees above absolute zero. So other things turn into ice as well. I mentioned methane. There's also carbon monoxide, which would be toxic to us as a gas, and a lot of nitrogen particularly. So it's kind of an icy world, but very different from, say, polar ice that we're used to. 
And then as our last question, when New Horizons shoots off into the outer parts of the solar system, uh, what sort of things are you hoping it will observe or find? Because it's not exactly clear what it's going to see, is it? No, because this is a very unknown region of space that's so far out on the outskirts of our solar system. I know they're trying with the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, to find another dwarf planet that it could visit without too much course change. So it'll be kind of find them along the way and hope for the best. But this whole region, the Kuiper Belt object of things as small as comets and up to the size of dwarf planets is very badly explored. And one of the things is even to find the small particles, the grit we were talking about at the beginning of the interview that's still orbiting out there. And the student-built experiment I mentioned, the student dust counter on New Horizons, which was built by a team of undergraduates in the States, is actually doing some of the exploration because it's looking for particles, little bits of grit that hit the spacecraft on its way out. Hopefully not big enough in the next year to cause damage, but also telling us about what this primordial stuff is like, how much there is, where it is, and so on. So it's sort of largely unchanged from the very early days of the solar system, is it? That's the idea, yes. So we still don't really know how these dwarf planets are stuck together and how many there are and why a lot of them are different to each other. Some are very icy, some are very rocky. Pluto's the only one we know of so far with its own very thin atmosphere, so it's all a big mystery. Excellent. Well, those two things fit together quite well, then, the sort of studies of the outer parts of our own solar system and then the primordial accretion disks around other stars. Exactly. It's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. Thank you for that, Mark. And now it's time for the part of the show with the things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And we'll start with Indy. Indeed. So I'm going to be talking about uh, Saturn in this other end, and specifically one of Saturn's rings. As you might know, Saturn has several rings, uh, which are even visible from a small telescope. It's really quite cool to look at them. And the rings are numbered alphabetically from the inside out. And so the, the outermost ring of Saturn is known as the F ring. And it's really narrow compared to the other rings. It's only a few hundred kilometers across. A really interesting study has just been released, done by NASA, where it's compared the aspect of the rings as they were seen by the Voyager mission, uh, which passed by um, Saturn in the late 70s, and, and the Cassini mission, which flew by Saturn 30 years later, to see if any differences in the ring could be seen at all. It turns out that, that the ring has dramatically changed in that time. So so what, one of the main differences is that the number of big clumps in the F-ring. So the rings are made up of rocks, dust of varying sizes. So the F-ring contained a fair amount of, of icy clumps of matter. The study found that the number of those clumps has actually gone down sharply in the time between Voy- Voyager and Cassini. Voyager saw sort of tens of these 30 years ago, and Cassini only saw two of the features during a, a six-year period where it was going around Saturn. So the F-ring has a, has a very uneven texture it's 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 not smooth at all it's full of little bumps and kinks and and whatnot scientists have long thought that what was responsible for this uh, would be little moonlets basically uh which were about five kilometers wide these moonlets were sort of moving in and out of the f-ring in their slightly irregular orbits one thing about the f-ring so it, it is at the edge of saturn's rings and the reason for that is that it's at what's known as uh the rush limit and basically, any moons that are, or any larger bodies orbiting closer to Saturn than this Roche limit will in fact be just torn apart by Saturn's gravitational force. So this is why that when you move closer to Saturn and you get, go past the Roche limit, anything gets broken up and this explains the rings. But so for any of Saturn's moons to be 
coherent and not be torn apart. They need to be outside this limit. And as one of the scientists on the uh, on the project says, material at this distance from Saturn can't decide whether it wants to remain as a ring or coalesce to form a moon. It's kind of of two minds. Scientists reckon that a small, not quite moon, but these sort of moonlets that exist just outside or just on the limit tend to crash in and out of the ring, and those are what create the clumps. And the reason that the number of clumps has gone down over the years is that scientists reckon that, it's that the number of moonlets has gone down. And the, the reason that these moonlets have been disappearing would be a larger sort of proto-moon or extremely large rock, essentially, is what it is. So the reason the number of these moonlets has been declining is another larger, essentially, rock or proto-moon known as Prometheus. And so that's a proto-moon that's about 119 kilometers across. It's almost more like a comet or an asteroid, but it orbits so just around the F-ring. Essentially, it just perturbs the moonlit orbits even more. These things just tend to knock together and, and eventually just get pulverized, which leads to the destruction. They also seen that every 17 years, the orbit of Prometheus aligns with the orbit of the F-ring in a way that actually increases its gravitational influence. When these orbits align, this would spur the sort of creation of lots of extra moonlets, which go crashing into the ring and then create these bright clumps of material as they smash themselves against each other. So what's going on in Saturn's F-ring is just a, a huge, terrifying version of bumper cars where all these different rocks of varying sizes are just smashing into each other all the time. So even though when you look at Saturn through a telescope and you see the rings and it does look extremely beautiful, there is a lot of cosmic violence going on there. I had no idea there was quite so much activity in the Saturn rings still. So moons are kind of being built up and then smashed apart. Yeah, pretty Very much. Uh, that's, that's what it seems is happening. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a cycle of uh, destruction and creation, all the while going around Saturn. Presumably on a long-term scale, the rings themselves are fairly stable. I mean, it's not like we're observing Saturn at some special time when there are rings, presumably. I'm not entirely sure about that. I mean, they are in, in, in a very stable orbit. Or at least they're in a stable orbit in terms of the time period in which humanity has been able to observe the rings. Yeah, I think I think that's about all that we can say. I'm not entirely sure about planetary ring theory. So far, it seems to be that on, on a larger scale, they, they do look fairly stable. Uh, there are other things in the solar system. I guess the one thing which stands out in my mind is the red spot on Jupiter, where people have pointed out that that's shrinking. You know, at least since I was a kid, I expected the great red spot to last forever. There's a chance that it may disappear during my lifetime. So we, we often talk about I mean, on this show and, and just in astronomy in general, people talk about huge phenomena at extremely large scales, um, both time scales and distance scales. But the cool thing about the solar system is that things do happen on a more immediate basis and, and we can see things evolving yet yeah, within our lifetimes as opposed to things that we extrapolate to happens over millions and billions of years. I'm going to talk about an asteroid that didn't hit the Earth. On September the 7th, 2014, RC, an asteroid that is around about 20 metres in diameter, passed pretty close to the Earth. In fact, one-tenth of the distance from the Earth to the Moon, so around about 40,000 kilometres above the Earth's surface. It was comparable in size, apparently, to the one that did enter the atmosphere and exploded over Chelyabinsk in Russia last year. Um, but this one at least seemed to have passed on harmlessly by until it was reported that a crater had been made in Nicaragua, 
on the outskirts of the capital, which is called Managua. And it was actually right near an airport. And this was thought to have possibly been a bit breaking off the asteroid, entering the Earth's atmosphere and creating this crater. However, there now seems to be quite a lot of scepticism around as to whether this really was due to the asteroid. Um, apparently, it wasn't observed as a meteor or a fireball, so no one saw a flash of light in the sky, which happened and was filmed over Chelyabinsk. Um, and also, people are suggesting that the crater doesn't look like it's new enough, um, and also the asteroid would have had to have come almost straight down, which would be a little little bit surprising. So technically, uh, the two terms which are used is a, a find and a fall. So what you're saying is that this is not a fall. Well, it's a matter of debate, but it seems as though it may not be. Yeah, in fact, it could have been caused by something else. People have suggested a bit of space junk that was descending at the time, or even just that this crater wasn't anything to do with a uh, an object from space at all. It could have been something like a military test. I mean, there was a, a loud bang, is what was what was reported. And perhaps also most tellingly, the explosion was reported to have occurred 13 hours before the closest approach of the asteroid. So it's not impossible that a bit could precede it, but it seems less likely. 13 hours for something that was moving relative to the Earth so quickly is quite a long time. If anyone happened to have seen 2014 RC, then send the picture to the Jogcast. Apparently it was magnitude 11.2, which means that a telescope around 4.5 inches in aperture would have been able to see it, and it was shooting across the sky at almost a degree a minute. So, so even more than the diameter of the full moon per minute when it was twice closest. the uh, diameter of the full moon per minute. Mm-hmm. That's fast. Yeah. Could be mistaken for a satellite. Yeah, at that speed, yeah. And so it's an example of a bit of of a smallish asteroid or near-earth object that actually was tracked before it arrived. And in fact, it's on a one and a half year orbit around the sun that every so often comes rather close to the Earth. And now its orbit's been changed quite a lot by being kind of flung around the Earth. Well, the uh, item that I brought for the Ozanens today is relatively simple. It's a selfie taken by the Rosetta spacecraft as it checks out its uh, instruments. The selfie was actually taken by the Comet Infrared Invisible Analyzer, uh, abbreviation SIVA, which is one of the instruments on board the lander, which is called FILE. This particular camera is designed to take a 360-degree image of the surrounding area, so be able to take a panoramic uh, image when it lands on the comet surface. Since the spacecraft is uh, still approaching the comet, uh, preparing for the landing, it makes sense to test out the uh, all of the instrumentation beforehand, and it just happened to take an interesting photo of part of the Rosetta spacecraft, including one of the solar panels uh, in this picture. Selfies are all the rage, aren't they? Yeah, Curiosity took one of itself as well. It's like, you can't send out a probe without having a selfie function on it now. <laughs> well, they're supposed to have 360-degree fields of view, and there is value to being able to take 360-degree field pictures. Yeah, it, but that doesn't imply that it can take a picture of itself, but it seems that both Curiosity and uh, Android have been able to do that. So. 
which is the most distant selfie? Presumably, I mean, from the Earth, presumably it was Curiosity. Because now Rosetta's comet has come within the orbit of Mars, I think, hasn't it? Yeah, although if, if you took it on how far it's travelled before it took the selfie, then Rosetta definitely wins. Deep philosophical questions. <laughs> <laughs> These are important issues, George. These pictures oh. go on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking that uh, I've worked with missions like the Spitzer Space Telescope and the Herschel Space Observatory, where those telescopes are completely incapable of t- taking images of themselves. On the other hand, I currently work with ALMA in Chile, and um, the individual antennas frequently take images of other antennas, too, <laughs> um, which isn't good because you can't use those data anymore. Oh, I see. It's called shadowing. Now on to a person who does not like to take selfies of himself. Here's Dr. Adam Avison with Ask an Astronomer. Answering your questions today is Dr. Adam Avison. Hi, Adam. Hi. All of the questions today are from John Brooks, who's asked a series of uh, questions related to photons. And the first one is, where does a photon of light receive its energy from? Okay, so first, um, it might be interesting to consider the concept of mass-energy equivalence. So we all know the, the famous equation E equals mc squared, so this relates mass to uh, energy using the speed of light squared, which kind of means that anything with a certain energy has a, an equivalent mass or, or something a system with mass has an equivalent energy. And a, an example to think about is if you heat up, for instance, a lump of lead, as the lead absorbs energy, its mass will increase, even though no matter has been added. It'll be a tiny increase because we've got this speed of light squared, so the speed of light is 300 million metres a second, and if you square that, you get 9 followed by 16 zeros. You've increased the mass of, of this lead, and then if you let it cool down, its mass will come down again. And then there's this other concept, the the, the law of uh, a fundamental law of the universe, which is the conservation of energy. So you can't create or destroy uh, energy; you can just merely convert it from one form to another. So this system is losing is losing effectively mass, which is en- uh, equivalently energy. Um, so it needs to go somewhere rather than ceasing to exist. And there you you need to release photons. So. What is a photon? A photon is a, a quantized package of energy. And from our lead system, it's we are releasing infrared photons. Um, I'll get onto sort of that later on. And uh, photons are released from, from many systems, like in our, uh, that example, and also electron transitions within atoms. Uh, if you get a charged particle whipping around a, a magnetic field, or the rotation or vibration of molecules will release photons. So this is all energy being uh, removed from a, from a system. So to answer John's question, a photon is just created with its energy. It doesn't sort of exist and then somehow get piled up with with energy and then later on exist with less energy. And the the characteristic that you associate with a with a photon is, is usually its frequency or wavelength. And the frequency depends on on the energy that the photon has. So high energy photons have high frequencies, so more oscillations per second, um, such as gamma and X rays. And low energy photons, like radio waves, have lower frequencies, so fewer oscillations per second or long wavelengths. And the relationship between a photon's energy and its frequency is uh, is given by uh, the formula E equals h nu, where nu is the uh, is the frequency, and h is is something called the Planck constant, which has a value of six point six three times ten to the minus thirty four joule seconds. Now, this is quite an interesting little formula. It seems very simple, one number times by another, but it does lead into the, the very weird world of quantum mechanics. 
and why we call a photon a quantized package of energy. Because if you if you think about the, that formula, uh, E equals H nu, a photon can't have any energy, any given energy. It has to have a value of this Planck constant H in it. So all the photons in the universe have some factor of H in them, so they are effectively quantized. And it's it's kind of a, an odd and slightly um, unnatural truth, I think, if you think about it, um, what you'd expect to be reality and what actually turns out to be when you measure it. And it's this is the basis of uh, quantum mechanics. And um, if you're kind of interested in, in that, I could recommend a, a book called uh, Quantum, Einstein, Bohr and the Great Debate about the Nature of Reality by Manjit Kumar, which I read earlier this year. And it's a great introduction to some very, very uh, introductory level bits of quantum mechanics sort of with diagrams and things. And then the rest of the book is just about the history and who was key in developing uh, quantum mechanics, which is a great read because there were some interesting characters, Einstein, Bohr, uh, Dirac, all these all these characters that you hear about in your first year at university studying physics. Cool. Um, and so, so basically, photons created with a fixed amount of energy that, that is basically part of its identity. It's just a packet of, um, of energy that determines its wavelength. So the follow-on question also from, from John Brooks is, so how once a photon's created, how far can it go with that energy? How long can a photon of light exist? Basically? Well, um, yeah, you, you, those two questions can get kind of bundled together. So a photon travels at the speed of light, which is the universal speed limit, and uh, has no mass. And as such, it will travel forever, indefinitely, until it interacts with something. Um, so if you had one photon in a infinite universe, which was a perfect vac- vacuum, so no other particles in it, then your photon would exist forever. It would travel for an infinite time, covering an infinite distance. And so what happens when you stop a photon of light? Basically, when, when a photon interacts with matter, one of the, the ways it can be stopped is its absorption. And when you absorb a photon, um, a number of things can happen. One, if you've got a high enough energy photon, it can uh, transfer all its energy to an electron, which, if it's high enough energy, can allow the electron to escape. So you you ionise your atom. You've now got a nuclei with a positive charge and an electron that's that's whipped off, and your photon that you started out with is is gone. Um, slightly lower energy photons, you can. Um, you move electrons about within the atom. They have different sort of energy states that they can exist in. Um, and so your your atom becomes excited for a little while. Um, and then after a certain amount of time, it becomes de-excited. And, and another photon is uh, is is emitted from, from the atom as the energy is, is released from the system. And so on a larger scale, so moving from the, the atomic world... Uh, we stop photons all the time in our telescopes. Um, you know, they, they, they hit our uh, dishes and are reflected and then land on our CCDs, our radio receivers, and allow us to ob- observe the universe. I did have a, another re- interpretation of John's final question, if you could stop a photon, which was... Uh, I, I wondered if, if he imagined you could pause one in the... Uh, just freeze it in midair and... Uh, that just made my head hurt a lot. I think you would have to find a quantum mechanic or a... Time Lord or someone to uh, to answer that question. <laughs> Great. Thanks a lot, Adam. And now time for feedback. 
Uh, we've not had any posts for this episode, so a gentle reminder to please send us postcards whenever you can. If you go on holidays, think of us. We do have an email, a very nice email from Gordy Brooks, who says, Good morning from Australia, Jodcast team. Just wanted to give a shout out to you guys and let you know that I listened to the Jodcast while running along the beach near home. Too bad there aren't more shows because it's one of my favourite podcasts. Jod on. Thanks a lot, Gordy. Um, I wish I could listen to the Jodcast running on the beach near my home. Well, we probably would like there to be more podcasts too, but we really wouldn't have the time to do more than two a month. So um just going to have to wait every couple of weeks for the next one to come out, Gordy. But cheers for your email. On Facebook, thank you for all the likes and shares. And on Twitter, there was some interesting posts by Salford Astronomical Society, one of the local astronomical societies, about their telescope, which apparently, I didn't know this before, but it was once kept at Jodrell Bank, although not now. And in 1989, they said, as they've been looking up its history, uh, this telescope was used to time an occultation of a star by Saturn's moon Titan. So Titan happened to pass in front of a star and block it out. Uh, and that can help you determine a lot of things about the object doing the blocking. And apparently they sent their measurement of how long this occultation took off to NASA, along with a lot of other observers around the world. And this helped to determine something about Titan's atmosphere although I don't know the details. It's observations like that which are surprisingly important just because you need telescopes spread out all over to get good views of uh, occultation events like this just because it's like they're likely to be visible in only such a small area on the Earth's surface, and so wherever you can see them, you get valuable information. That's uh, true. So in fact, where I said other observations around the world, they probably wouldn't have been with being concentrated in a, in a region of the world. Well, still, everybody would have tried and sent yeah. in their information, but uh, it sounds like the telescope at Bank got very lucky. And also, there's a great movie of it on YouTube. There's a little 11-second clip, and it actually has the occultation happening sort of in the background. In the foreground is a stopwatch being <laughs> filmed, and so you can actually see the event unfolding, and you can see the exact timing sort of frame by frame if you want to. Impressive. If you want to get in touch... You can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Jane Greaves and Professor Ben Steppers for the interviews. The editors were Sally Cooper, Samira Alhabi, George Bendo, and Ian Harrison. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan.